my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about an underground artist. Yes, that's right, Damon Packard. There's a very good chance that you haven't heard of or seen any films by Damon Packard. There's a good reason for that. You're never going to see them on any streaming service. And Ah, Tubi will uh, play them for you. Okay, okay, that's right. Tubi will put anything on uh, Lawyers Be Damned. Mm -hmm. But this is somebody who, like when people say that their movies aren't going to be legally released, you know, oftentimes, of course, those problems get worked out. But there are certain films that Damon Packard has made that I really don't think can be legally released. So one of them we're going to talk about today, it did get struck with a kind of lawsuit and he had to cut out one of the songs. Interesting. But other than that, I feel like he's gone through it because as he's discussed in interviews, why not? Like, why wouldn't I do this? It's not like these movies are going to get wide distribution anyway. And this is one of the things, there's, there's a lot I respect about Damon Packard, but this is one of the things I respect about him. He has devoted his life and I don't know if career is the right word, but he's devoted his life to making these movies that are intensely personal and that are sort of like, I don't know, reclaiming the culture for us. Kind of Eastwald cinema by Damon Packard. Like, that's what all his movies are. Yeah. If they were a little bit more fun than the Jean-Luc Godard variety. So his films include Reflections of Evil. That's probably his acknowledged masterpiece from 2002, as well as Untitled Star Wars Mockumentary from 2003, the more recent Fatal Pulse, and many others. They are Hard to describe. This is something for Justin only. Imagine if David the Rock Nelson was a genius. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what he's like. But I mean, that's useless. David the Rock Nelson's even more obscure than David Packard. You could say it's a variation on David Lynch if he kept making Inland Empire (laughs) in different forms. And if he wasn't David Lynch, if he was a guy who really was sort of living and filming on the margins and, you know, could not have a meeting with Studio Canal anytime he wanted. There's no conventionally beautiful images in Damon Packard cinema. (laughs) But they are dreamlike. They are these kind of cultural detritus, I don't know, swamps. Mm -hmm. They say a lot about the world that we live in, although certainly not in any didactic kind of way. And they are very funny. There's very few filmmakers that I feel you get a pure stream of consciousness look into their psyche Mm -hmm. without any kind of obvious Mm self-reflection. You feel that in Damon Damon Packard's movies that he's making these movies almost automatically that like he's doing all this stuff just because he feels like he needs to express himself this way and he doesn't really need to get down to brass tacks and explain to his cast and crew exactly what's happening did you watch the documentary about reflections of evil where Mm -hmm. like the filmmaker who's doing the doc is like I'm trying to understand what's going on but I can't get a grip on it and no one on set seems to know what's going on either I did watch that and it's so funny because Damon Packard this like legit madman making this very strange movie. He's sort of like, you know, any micro-budget Hollywood independent guy where he's going on Craigslist or whatever the 2002 equivalent of Craigslist was, getting actors, getting crew people there, and then just throwing them into these, like, weird, if David Dakota was more of a sorry i'm just i'm, I'm trying of, to find i'm like, at a loss for words mm-hmm. but okay let's how about we start and we'll talk about his life story and some more about him later but why don't we start with just describing reflections of evil from 2002 which is I guess kind of the quintessential Packard joint. Now, they do say in the documentary that it was supposed to be called Night Gallery Revisited Reflections (laughs) of Evil. (laughs) 
Can you can you imagine that? And so Reflections of Evil, I mean, the one summary explanation of it is Damon Packard plays a homeless man covered in garbage who walks around, gets yelled at, barked by dogs, keeps falling over, his blood splattering all over the place, and every now and then he vomits. This goes on for two hours and 20-ish minutes. Yeah, it's very long. This movie is both everything and nothing. I mean, there are times when it feels unendurable, and then when it's over, it's a masterpiece. And I'm not joking when I say this. Like, you're like, ah, ha, ha. most of the film, is, yeah, like 80% of the film is David Packard like walking around being like, arr, arr, arr. and then a dog will be like, and you're like, oh, nice doggy. But that extra 20% makes the whole difference as well. But also should mention that Damon Packard as this homeless man appears out of thin air. He's kind of like an alien, although that's not really expanded on. Yeah, he wanders the street. He's very obese. He's carrying a lot of bags. Made himself more obese by like stuffing uh, shirts under his shirt. Yeah. To make him look like he has a giant gut. And yeah, he has all these interactions with people, some of whom are hired and paid actors, many of whom I suspect are not. Mm -hmm. There's that great tension when you're watching a scene and going, is this a real person or is it an actor? It's like if he appears in multiple shots, you know it's an actor, but you're not quite sure most of the time. Did you ever hear that Harmony Kareen started making a movie where it was called like Fight Movie or something? And his idea for it was, I want to make a like a real Buster Keaton movie. And so he went out and he would pick fights with people and oh, he would boy. film himself. And like they never finished the movie because he kept getting injured. This movie sort of put me in mind of that premise. It's There's a real high wire act element to this and uh, the listeners may be wondering okay well what is appealing about this movie first of all incredible portrait of los angeles mm -hmm. this is a movie that's haunted by the entertainment industry he's constantly walking past these billboards these very strategically used billboards for like well miscongeniality is the one that keeps coming up over and over again but he goes on this weird surreal backlot voyage at universal studios you know he sees the norman bates house he sees all this stuff he dreams that the ghost of steven spielberg in his early 20s is there shooting the tv movie something evil and being sort of laughed at by his crew. Mm. Steven Spielberg is a figure who recurs throughout the Packard filmography. This is the thing about Damon Packard. He loves all of the classic Hollywood movies that everybody loves. So he loves Spielberg. He loves Lucas. He loves even people like Scorsese. If you look at his Facebook, all he does is go to the New Beverly to see movies. Mm. He's not like someone who goes, ah, I am above this stuff and I'm commenting on it. He genuinely loves it. A film like Reflections of Evil is his way to express that love. Well, the use of Spielberg and Lucas in these movies, he uses them as the human embodiment of Hollywood. They are these dream weavers. They create these movies that tens of millions of people love, and not just love, but people like feel the Spielberg and Lucas movies in their souls. They're part of their childhoods. Like we as a culture sort of have a collective ownership of these movies. They are, uh, you know, it's corny to say, but they're a sort of shared mythology. However, in a very real sense, we don't own these movies. In a very real sense, they own those movies or Lucas used to. Now Disney owns them. The business owns those movies. And they're not your friends. They're your boss. Mm -hmm. And that's a tension that recurs in these movies. And when Damon Packard just flagrantly uses footage from Star Wars, there's an element of reclamation there. It's like, these are our movies too, and I'm, I'm taking this, and it doesn't matter if I'm not even allowed to 
distribute this movie legally. I'm I'm declaring that I own this movie. And in Reflections, another thing that Packer deals with is the idea of consumption, whether it be the media that he consumes or in Reflections, as it's illustrated over and over again, literal consumption of food mm-hmm. and an uncontrollable like need to eat over and over again. That being kind of a literalization of the metaphor of brain has been rotted by all this media, specifically from the 70s, he's been consuming since birth. Another movie I thought of a bit watching this was Driller Killer, the mm-hmm. Abel Ferrara movie, where so much of it is this, I mean, I'm, I'm not doing justice to how funny this movie is, but so much of it is this wail of anger about this society in which we live, this incredibly unjust and cruel society where, you know, it's Hollywood. Steven Spielberg's over there and Sandra Bullock's on this billboard and there are just so many people who are desperate and puking in the sewer in front of it, in front of all of this opulence and wealth. There's that and the movie really makes you sit in that for a long time. And there's, you know, footage of homeless people in this movie that I think it's possible to have some some objections about. Morally, but I mean, at the same time, there's something just very raw and confrontational and and honest and, and angry about the film. But it's also like so funny throughout. Like there's this absolutely painful bit in Reflections of Evil where there's a montage of like obviously quite mentally ill homeless people and he's playing the Carpenter's music on the soundtrack. I was having trouble with the scene, but then there's another element of it that's like, okay, there's so much pain and misery and awfulness and nobody talks about this and nobody wants to do anything about it. Like, you have to laugh at a certain point. Especially at the lengths that the scene goes, because it goes on and on and on and on. (laughs) Yeah, and like, that's kind of what these movies are about too. It's sort of like laughing in the face of all this awful because what else can you do? I think it's also important to consider that Packard is not someone who is coming from a place of, you know, money and making this film and filming from across the street all this stuff. He's talked about himself that he struggled with, you know, keeping a place to live, Mm -hmm. even living on the street himself. And you get that kind of in the way the entire movie is structured or the way that he would structure a film. Yeah, I mean, he he doesn't feel above what he's showing. Mm -hmm. He feels very much part of it. I mean, I do know that he was able to finish this movie because he did get an inheritance. That's the only reason this movie exists. I mean, it's yeah. shot on film. Yeah. Otherwise, this movie could not exist. And it's like, well, well, obviously, you mm-hmm. know, that's that's the only way. Yeah, as you say, it's the only way it could have been done. Again, this movie is funny, though. Like, I think if you watch this movie and you're in the right frame of mind and you're willing to accept it, you're willing to go on this movie's wavelength, like you will find much to be entertained at. I mean, he uses throughout so many commercials from the 70s, just awful garbage. Well, he wouldn't call them awful, but but I'm calling them awful. Like, yes. <laughs> kitschy, terrible commercials for bad 70s TV shows and the climax of this movie at Universal Studios. Oh, so good. Well, we should also point out that there's not really a story to this film other than the uh, Damon Packard character having difficulties with his grandmother, mother, mm-hmm. <laughs> and his relationship with his sister, who is also a ghostly presence that is running in slow motion through these empty LA areas that climaxes with her going to Universal Studios where Damon Packard is also there. And she has to witness every death that happened at Universal Studios and in gory detail, which they shot guerrilla style without any permission, which got Damon Packard banned for life from Universal huh. Studios. And then, you know, he goes to the E.T. ride. And if you ever saw the E.T. ride, you'll know that Steven Spielberg, there's a video of him introducing it and being like, that's the thing about these movies is that if you go in knowing that it's just stream of consciousness, I feel like there's a lot to just kind of like lean into because he continually goes back to the same 
themes, images, the use of overdub sound, which becomes funnier and funnier the more it's used throughout the film, because everyone is dubbed in Reflections of Evil. And it's like, yeah, there's so much ugliness in this world, and the only beauty that you have access to are these hideous synthetic images that Hollywood is producing, <laughs> yeah, you know? That's all you got! And it's slowly rotting before your eyes, and you're unsure. It's like, Packard clearly loves these images, yeah. but then he's putting them in the film in the most horrifying way possible. And like, how do you break free of this? Like, there's no solidarity on the street here. Mm. You know, he goes around. He has no friends. Everyone hates each other. Yes. Everyone hates each other. Dogs hate him. <laughs> yeah. There's a montage of just dogs barking at him for 10 minutes. So, Damon Packard, where did he get started, Will? So, I know he was born in 1967 in Akron, Ohio. Uh, his father was a prominent labor union activist, actually. He was the district president of the Amalgamated Meat Cutters and Butcher Workmen of America, led strikes in the 1930s, although his father died, I think, quite early in his life. I know that, you know, in his early years as a filmmaker, he, he worked a lot of just, just odd jobs, menial jobs, theater rusher, that kind of thing, while he was making 8mm shorts. His first major work is called Dawn of an Evil Millennium from 1988. And he made that because he became acquainted with a guy named Paul Trainer, who is the son of a producer named Chris Trainer, who was the producer of such films as Ator the Fighting Eagle, starring uh, Miles O'Keefe. That was a Conan ripoff from Italy by Joe D'Amato. And uh, Miles O'Keefe is in Dawn of an Evil Millennium. And Dawn of an Evil Millennium is 20 minutes. And how would you describe it? Uh, I think it's fascinating because it's kind of the proto-version of Reflections of Evil, because it was made, I mean so many years before then that there's like kind of a youthful energy. I mean, anyone mm -hmm. who watches it will go, oh, well, he was ripping off Shinya Sakamoto because there's a real Tetsuo the Iron Man vibe. But it came out a year before Tetsuo the Iron Man came out. So I think they were maybe just using the same influences and the same style mm -hmm. organically without getting that connection. A lot of body horror. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a lot of that underground energy. Again, so sort of stream of consciousness. Yeah, Damon Packard spent most of the movie wearing uh, monster teeth covered in blood and blue goo and the camera zooming and zipping all over the place you get kind of those references and remixing of movies that he loves guy dressed like Blade Runner literal dialogue from Blade Runner just be dropped into it music from John Carpenter films yeah it, they live in this case sometimes in his movies like Jean-Luc Godard's Histoire du Cinema it feels like the entire history of the medium collapses into this one thing I also thought about those YouTube videos where Cool Duder and Wet Movie go to go to the big box store <laughs> So they go to they go to Goodwill and they're just like fishing through the DVD bin. You know, oh, I like this movie. I like this movie. I like this movie. Titanic is there and Baby Einstein is there and a workout video is there and it's all the same thing. He's gonna know? and they're gonna buy them all because that's what they do. They just consume and time just flattens it all out into the same thing. And I think there's a little bit of that in you know probably my personal favorite Packard movie, the one that I would take to a desert island with me, 2003's Untitled Star Wars mockumentary. Now on the surface, this sounds like something that everybody did. I did it when I was in college, which is like you insert yourself into pre-existing media, mm -hmm. usually commenting on what's going on. What's the difference between this one and, you know, the one you would have made in college? Quality is mm -hmm. the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, it's ingenious. It's I was so just, funny, too. I was, was going to say, okay, it's, it's insanely funny. And I was going to say that there is a real critique going on here, although I'm not quite sure what it is. There's a 
real worldview at play. I mean, I think it kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier about his use of Spielberg and Lucas. It's it's this tension of the fact that like he loves them and he's uh, he does not seem to like these prequel films. <laughs> well, he loves Spielberg and Lucas. He loves the the characters they've created and the worlds they've created, and we're all a part of those worlds. But also, George Lucas is an oligarch. Okay, he's the boss, and in this movie, the footage we see of him, he's like Colonel Kurtz, where he's just off on his island, surrounded by yes men, and no one can touch him because he's that rich, he's that privileged. There's a really funny scene of just them watching like uh, footage, and it keeps cutting to Damon Packard like eating snacks and like dropping snacks <laughs> as it's happening. That's just the joke. He's like, "Oh, oops, sorry." <laughs> So he takes the behind the scenes footage from Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. And all of this stuff was on the DVDs. And many people have used this footage because it's very funny. You, it like, feels like The Office, basically. Yeah, you see George Lucas just having all these terrible ideas and saying all these And everyone being things. like, oh, yeah, that's great, George. Yep. Oh, great idea. You know, we've, we've seen a million times that bit where he f- screens the Phantom Menace for the first time for his staff. And it's like <laughs> it's like a funeral. And, and, and it ends with him going like, I think maybe I went too far on something (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so it's using all that footage and then it's like cutting him and his some of his friends into it and so like i mean there are some he 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 finds ways to criticize the star wars movies like he he criticizes the prequels and some of the race stuff this will sound very harsh and ugly when i say it and it is harsh and ugly but there's a bit where he said yeah uh, george wanted me to want absolute authenticity in creating these alien creatures so we went downtown and we got some footage of uh, homeless black people and we're working on it now and you know, you see him like intercut. George Lucas is there. And then a guy on his computer fiddling with documentary footage of homeless black people. I mean, I believe it's footage from Reflections of Evil. <laughs> yes. And like, obviously, that's that's harsh and that's ugly. And maybe you would have some objection to it. But it's a cutting, cutting critique. There's also just a lot of footage from a lot of other movies. He makes some points about the ways that Star Wars has influenced culture. Not always positively. There's a funny bit where like George and the gang sit down to watch the new Star Star Wars movie and what they see on the screen is this montage of footage from all sorts of movies that Star Wars has influenced. Hey, look, it's Sword and the Sorcerer, Albert Pune's movie. I I noticed that too, but like a lot of not very good movies and you're looking for something state of the art, you, you know, you think you're going to see like, oh, the Dreamweavers have done it again, but you see all this stuff that's so incredibly cheesy and tacky and terrible. Like you have a sequence where they're watching footage from the movie and George Lucas goes, "You know, I tried to get like a bunch of different stuff Styles. And then you see what actually a bunch of different styles is when you see like a hundred movies just cut in together, set to the score of The Exorcist 2 Heretic. <laughs> that stuff is funny. I also like, I don't want to spoil every funny joke in this, but it opens with an introduction from the Tony Curtis recorded. We've referenced it a million times. Well, this also happens in Reflections of Evil yes, as well. Exactly. Like Tony Curtis in the 90s for a, for a line of DVDs from a company called Delta Laserlight, they hired Tony Curtis to just read a teleprompter and do these incredibly awkward intros where he's like hi i'm tony curtis welcome to laser light special edition classics today we're talking about one of orson welles's great movies the trial and you know he goes on like that but you know the intro is that he's dubbed over damon packard <laughs> damon where, packard yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, today we're talking about one of hollywood's true tough guys damon, damon packard, packard. <laughs> i worked with him myself once and he was a gentle soul <laughs> That's really funny. (laughs) But also, like, the use of that footage, I mean, that footage is so self-evidently funny because Tony Curtis, once a very big star, once a very glamorous star, you know, towards the end of his life, reduced to being in this just shitty public domain DVD label, reading off a teleprompter talking about other 
public domain movies in this great big dumpster bin of film culture. And it makes sense that that would be used like repurposed here where it's like well tony curtis he barely knew where he was when he did that why not just he might as well have been talking about damon packard yeah exactly if you'd put anything on the teleprompter he would have said it now damon packard his career trajectory is interesting i mean he he may argue it's like career trajectory what are you talking about i mean he follows his muse you gotta mm-hmm. hand it to him he made a doc, uh, short about chemtrails yeah he did <laughs> he's a guy that when reflections of evil came out supposedly he made twenty thousand copies of it and mailed it to everyone he tells a story that he uh, sent one to Francis Ford Coppola and he made it look like it was from Dennis Hopper and even put like Dennis Hopper's address on it. So funny. I just, what would he be expecting to get out of it though? <laughs> like, Well, Matt Farley, our friend, does that. Does the same thing too, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and uh, I think he got similar results. <laughs> Nothing, pretty much. I guess you think if you send out 20,000 copies, law of averages, you know, if you send it to every new Hollywood guy, maybe one of them would be bored enough to put it on. Mm-hmm. And maybe he would be, you know, interested in it? I don't think so, though. None of those new Hollywood guys. It's really their uh, it, bag. It's hard for me to imagine Steven Fran- Spielberg? <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola watching two hours of a man, like, vomiting on on himself in the streets of L.A. and then and then, you know, topping it off with his friend Steven Spielberg being mocked. <laughs> <laughs> or being loved in that great scene where, where he's shooting something evil and they actually got a Spielberg lookalike Packard edited documentary audio of Spielberg, like, talking on movie sets. So you hear Spielberg voice over this guy miming it. Do we know if Tim and Eric ever saw Damon Packard's movies? Hmm. Because like Billion Dollar Movie ends with that scene. They show Steven Spielberg the movie and he says, as Steven Spielberg, I say that this is a masterpiece. And there's something about their use of Spielberg as just like King of Hollywood, you know, film industry personified that makes me think of Packard. But Packard's tone is so different than Tim and Eric. Yeah. Like Tim and Eric is kind of, you know, oftentimes looking above and be like, (laughs) well, definitely Tim and Eric, like when they use people as found mm. art objects when they use David Liebhardt or something they're walking the edge of like are you exploiting these people mm. or are you having fun with them and well I was gonna put that in opposition to Damon Packard I don't know I don't know if Damon Packard is exploiting these people but I do know that I do know that he's kind of down in the gutter with them in a way, <laughs> yes. in a way that Tim and Eric are. it's like as if one of the Tim and Eric characters made a movie and they just hired other Tim and Eric characters yeah yeah so Fox Fur from 2012 is is one of Packard's first kind of feature length films shot on digital like he did a bunch I know that Space Disco 1 uh, from 2007 is technically feature length over an hour but most people usually talk about Fox Fur when they talk about like his next big feature after the untitled Star Wars mockumentary. Fox Fur, yeah, 61 minutes long. Plot is difficult to describe. It's difficult to follow, but it is... I would say it's probably the easiest entry point to Damon Packard cinema. Really? I mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend this one first. Just because... It's not, it's not as funny as the other one. It's not. I think that it has more of a linear narrative even though that the actors continually change. One of the characters comments on it, he's like, wait, wait, what's going on? Weren't you somebody else before? That was definitely throwing me. In this movie, you can see Packard's interest in UFO and conspiracy, conspiracy theory, yeah. stuff. It's about a woman named Foxfur, who, again, is played by multiple people. She loses her home and she falls into this, like, conspiracy wormhole where she actually wants to go speak to real conspiracy theorist authors played by not them. 
yeah. and try to get an answer of like, you know, what's the meaning of reality? How do I get out of this? But it's all couched in the fact that she's being kicked out of her home and she's trying to find an answer from there. And uh, does it go absolutely bananas and people are dying left and right? Do we get a beautiful example of Damon Packard's obsession with computer generated effects later on in his career? Yes, we do. <laughs> yeah. Visually, I mean, I, I just keep comparing him to all of these obscure filmmakers. But if you've ever seen a Neil Breen movie like mm. Fateful Findings, it has a similar aesthetic to that kind of there's a little bit i mean I, I was reminded of that awful documentary what the bleep do we know with this sort of like weird new agey mystic tone but in a much more self-aware way and it's got i don't know all the packard stuff of they're in la and la is a character and you see billboards for dark all, shadows yeah. <laughs> gigantic dark shadows billboard or there's a scene where she's in front of the billboard for brave the pixar movie and she's like holding a bow and arrow and you almost feel the world around them influencing the plot in some way i mean this one is one of those obsession holes for Packer that like he loves like elf quest and like elf women stuff so the movie just turns into that in the last 20 minutes mm -hmm. and then you get more Logan's run and it ends in the most funny way ever with the character going uh okay and the credits roll <laughs> so love it 61 minutes I think that like asking someone to watch Reflections of Evil first may be a little daunting yeah because they're like oh two hours and 18 minutes or asking him to watch Fatal Pulse which is also around that runtime. well Fatal Pulse which is I think his most recent feature maybe he's made one since then but it's his slickest movie Movie, I think it's the one that looks the most like a real movie, quote unquote, real movie. Uh, I mean, it has a digital sheen to it. I mean, Reflections of Evil, when you see it, you're like, oh, this is shot on film. Like that, like notches it up a level already. But Fatal Pulse, you could be fooled into thinking it was a real movie for about maybe five minutes. It's, again, kind of an Inland Empire like. All his movies are yeah. Inland Empires. <laughs> it's an up all night tangled twisty web of of a lot of stuff going on in hollywood and what i can tell you is that julia roberts is a character william friedkin is a character the guy playing william friedkin gives the best william friedkin impression i've ever heard it's so unbelievable. good and it maintains and william friedkin just talking about wanting to get the guardian theatrical play <laughs> so it's very funny but it's also very dreamy and surreal and and quite haunting in in a way that is sort of lynchian mm -hmm. I, again, I just feel like I keep failing to convey the tone of these movies. But if I were to tell people which one they should watch first, I think I might go with Untitled Star Wars Mockumentary. It's mm -hmm. 45 minutes I long. I think that's an easy one, yeah, to digest. You know, you can find it. It's, it's incredibly funny, and you'll get it pretty quickly. All of his films are, as far as I can see, on Tubi. And some of the short ones are included in a film called like Tales of Madness on Tubi. Mm -hmm. It's like 90 minutes and Star Wars mockumentary is in that like 90 minute movie. Also, there's a website called DVDRparty.com, which is a bootleg, you know, DVD company. Seemingly run by Damon Packard? Well, I don't know that. If he runs it, good for him. But if he doesn't run it, he works with them to create these very tricked out, very extras packed DVD releases of his movies. I don't know. I got his two disc 20th anniversary edition of Reflections of Evil and it's full of shorts and other ephemera. And the website looks like it's straight out of 1999. <laughs> there yeah. is a GeoCities like overlay of like stuff falling when you go through the site. What I can tell you is that if you order from it, they will send you something. Yeah, you got it. As recently as two months ago, that we'll was the case. We'll roll those dice <laughs> yeah. and you got something out of it. So Damon Packard, if 
if you look into his recent stuff, uh, he's definitely going down that conspiracy rabbit hole. Like, uh, tell me more. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're setting me up. I want to know. His recent film, Howl of the Winterland, kind of explores his uh, obsession recently with anti-vaccine kind of stuff. Okay, I see. I mm. see. Well, here's what I'll say to that. If you're interested in weird, eccentric outsider artists, you are going to confront some weird, eccentric outsider views. Mm. And you're just going to have to be ready for that sometimes. And especially if they've been working for a long time, you kind of deepen that hole that they go down until you get to the, the darker stuff, if you will. I think you will see in Damon Packard a career-long distrust of authority, a career-long hatred of society as we live in it now, a hatred of injustice, of all these things. He's an artist, and he's working through things. Yep, so I would highly recommend everyone to check out his films. If anything, he is a filmmaker who deserves a bigger audience. Like, oh, more yeah. people talking about his films. Agfa carries Reflections of Evil. Like, they have it on their website. You can rent it from them. So he does have some institutions behind them, but listen, it's about the people that need to go out and see these movies. He deserves a reputation as a great and innovative filmmaker, and his movies are a challenge, but they're not a chore. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. So our first letter goes, Dear Justin and Will, oh, this is from Austin Alderman. I've been exploring your back catalog, both on the main feed and Patreon, since discovering the podcast through Justin's Mind Melter movie marathon. Oh, that's nice. Wow, someone just stumbled upon the 24-hour movie marathon and then started listening to the Important Cinema Club. Gotta tell you, Will, I pressed hard when I did the My Melter this week. Every break, I'm like, join Patreon. That was the oh, thing I was pushing. thank you. Guess what? We passed 600. We're like 603 <laughs> subscribers at this point. We did it. So it worked. And as someone said, Justin's been up 24 hours saying, subscribe to the Patreon as Will sleeps soundly in bed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I will join you eventually. As the years go by, it's just gonna get harder. It's not gonna happen. I know. It's it's so hard right now. <laughs> you can't, yeah it's, yeah. it's too much. I recently listened to your fantastic episode on Oscar Michaud, who happens to be one of my cities, Roanoke, Virginia's most famous residence. Oscar Michaud, one of the, I think, the most prolific African-American filmmaker of the 20th century, and he worked in the silent era. <laughs> and he says here, outside of the more unpleasant ones like John McAfee and Mark David Chapman. Oh, God. <laughs> between, <laughs> yeah, I would take Michaud over Mark David Chapman. <laughs> between 1922 and 1925, Michaud lived across from and kept an office in the Strand Theater on Henry Street. During that period, he produced multiple films in the city, including Virgin of the Seminole. Seminole? Uh, I, you see, I don't know that one, interestingly, because, you know, Michaud made 20 silent films, something like that, and only three of them survive, which is a tragedy. The Dungeon and, in part, Body and Soul, which was mostly shot in New York, but had additional scenes shot in Roanoke to appease a censor board, showing that the minister, Reverend Isaiah T. Jenkins, is actually an escaped convict pretending to be a man of the class and not a drunk, raping, murderous preacher, as Michaud initially intended as a jab to his former father-in-law. Your show has quickly become my favorite podcast, has given me the opportunity to not only discover new and exciting filmmakers I wouldn't have on my own, but also ask to explore part of my city's history that I had no idea existed. That's amazing oh that he didn't God. know Oscar Michaud lived in his city or worked in his city. And just by listening to the podcast, he realized that. I'm I'm humbled by that. That's great. And it actually kind of makes me want to visit, you know, to see some of those oh, do Michaud they have, like, sites. a museum or anything? I wonder if they do. I mean, probably not, because I, I wonder how much Michaud stuff is still... I mean, most of his movies aren't available, mm -hmm. like probably there weren't a lot of people keeping around his stuff. Didn't one of his movies make it on like the 50 worst movies of all time? Jay Hoberman wrote about Oscar Michaud in his pioneering essay, Bad Movies. Mm, maybe but, that's what I was thinking. But it's like bad in quotation yeah. marks. And he talks about the fact that when they were making sound films, the technical limitations were incredibly difficult to work through. Yeah, and so like Oscar Michaud, you watch his sound films and you know, you see, you see the limits of 
of what somebody in that position was able to achieve. And it's like a parallel Hollywood. Uh, anyway, Oscar Micheaux is a great filmmaker. And the letter continues. If you ever start to run low on subjects, I can steer you toward another Renoke auteur, Charles E. Cullen, director and star of such films as Bros on Bikes, Super Badass, and The Day the Whole Fucking Earth Blew Up. For a time, he was also allowed to have a public access show where in one episode, he castrated my aunt's goats. Thanks so much, Austin. Well, I'm not familiar, but I... Oh, that sounds great. I am intrigued. <laughs> if you say, oh, this guy made films. Also, he had a very odd public access show. I am 100% there. I'm like, tell me more. So our next letter is from Klon Waldrip, and it goes, Hey, fellas, I've been enjoying the show for a few years now and finally decided to drop a line. I really love Justin's book on Albert Pyun, Radioactive Dreams. Well, thank you. And the gold ninja discs I've gotten are wonderful. I wanted to suggest a director, but keep in mind that I haven't bothered to check if you've already covered him. Well, reading this letter, I know that we haven't. I feel like we've talked about him in passing, though. The director is Jack Arnold, best known for the 1950s universal sci-fi movies Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Incredible Shrinking Man, Tarantula, etc. All right, I'm writing this at work, and it's time for me to go home. Ciao, ciao for now, and keep up the good work, Claude. Well, I certainly like a lot of Jack Arnold's movies. This is probably a problem with me, but in my head, I always classified him under that category of journeyman. I mean, absolutely, he's a journeyman. But but, but what if he's not? What if he's an auteur? <sighs> I do like that he ended his career directing Fred Williamson in Boss, and I can't say the second word of that title. <laughs> well, I saw Fred Williamson present Boss Bleep. <laughs> and he said, I directed most of it. So he said that. He said, I was doing a favor for Jack Arnold. He was very old at the time. I directed the film. And Fred Williamson, I love Fred Williamson. Is he perhaps a hmm, braggart of some sort? Does he maybe claim credit for things that he shouldn't have credit for? I, I say that genuinely not knowing. Mm -hmm. I mean, Fred Williamson has directed films. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've and seen they're him. not so hot. <laughs> oh, you said that, not me. I don't want Fred Williamson coming after me. You know, if Fred Williamson hears this, which he won't, <gasps> I just want to reiterate, I think he's a great man. We should man. do an episode on Fred Williamson. That would be fun. I love Fred Williamson. And I mean, he would definitely be a noteur in that sphere because he took control of his own means of production to do his own product he put out in the World. Okay, let's let's do him soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but in Jack Arnold, he's definitely on the list. I like the idea of exploring him as what does like a you know sci-fi filmmaker in the fifties do once that period ends? Mm -hmm. That kind of wandering, mostly television. But is there something there? I think Creature of the Black Lagoon as part of that kind of universal cycle is one of the better ones. I also think like Jack Arnold just made a lot of interesting movies that you could talk about on their own. I mean, he made High School Confidential. He made a, a noir with Orson Welles called Man in the Shadow. Mm -hmm. You know, lot lot of lot of interesting stuff. So uh, we're definitely adding it to the list and. You can send us questions or comments at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. So what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Yeah, baby. We both. Oh, behave. <laughs> we've been talking a lot about Austin Powers lately, if not on mic, then at least between us. <laughs> As we tend to do. And we decided, let's watch The Spy Who Shagged Me. And so we did, and we talked about it with some shocking revelations, as in, did we enjoy it? Well, you have to listen to find out. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And I was surprised to learn that there is a screening of The Spy Who Shagged Me at the Review Cinema. It will have passed by the time this episode's come out. And I wonder, did people have a riotous time? Were there people in that audience that had never seen the movie before? What would be the reaction? God, I can't, I cannot imagine. They would have to be younger than us. Yeah. Like, if you're 15, there's a good chance you haven't seen The Spy Who Shagged Me. I would be interested to hear what a 15-year-old would think of one of these movies, seeing it for the first time. If you're 15, never seen The Spy Who Shagged Me, watch it, send us a letter. Tell us what you saw. Yes, thank you. Why are any 15-year-olds listening to our podcast? <laughs> 
So next week, Will, we finally done it. It's episode 300, and people have been wondering what our topic will be. And of course, it's the comedy great, one of Will's favorites. We have to talk about it. So we're going to talk about that. You uh, said that you were going to watch, because you've only seen some of his movies. Mm-hmm. You're gonna watch them. You're gonna watch them all. You're gonna watch all the major ones. I will watch all of them. I'm gonna say that now. I, okay. Maybe not all the shorts. I think that's maybe a little bit too much because there's a lot of them and they're in a lot of different places. But I will definitely watch all the main feature films. So I'm really excited. We're finally getting to the subject. That's what we're doing next week. And until then, my name's Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Lots of new Patreon subscribers to thank, so let's get right to it. So, big old thank you to Samuel Langstone, Fiona Lemon, Jesse Lopez Sapero, Fulton Collins, Tad Holland, Sean Fremstad, Buff Guy, Joel J. Loman, Jacob Richardson, Akio Forsyth, John Otto, Kirk Sassoff, Daniel McClellan, Christian Cree, Jordan Ciceratia, Chase Zhu, Joshua Painter, Dornstein Gislason, Pete Khan, Sajid Khan, Colin Morgan, and Mary Taggart. Thank you all for becoming Patreon subscribers. If you're not a patron yet, and you become one before episode number 300, you will get a little bonus that nobody else will if they become a patron after. So, don't wait. Become a patron now at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. We're Elvis freaks on here, right? It's the Beatles were Elvis, and people love Elvis. It's me and Will. Yeah, Elvis. Um, uh, Hound Dog. <laughs> yeah, a song he originally wrote for himself, right? That's right. He didn't take it from anyone. <laughs> he invented rock and roll music. He invented the idea of of uh, swinging your hips. Swinging your hips, which drove people mad. So uh, Will has bounced uh, all over the place when it comes to Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. One episode, he's excited. The next, you're like, oh God, <laughs> I don't want to see this. I don't like Baz Luhrmann. But something has changed since then. You saw Elvis. I saw Elvis. And you liked it? I thought it was fun. Wow. I enjoyed it. I think it scratches a similar itch as Top Gun. It's mm-hmm. like big movie. Big cliches, big emotions. We've all been inside for two years. Let's let's believe in the movies again. I will say that my favorite part was like the first hour when mm-hmm. in all of Baz Luhrmann's film, it's when he's his most hyperactive. Yes. Where he's like, let's give you all this stuff. And he does almost speed racer-esque montages where you're in one moment, but you're cutting to other moments to build up to the moment you started with. That first five minutes where, you know, Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker <laughs> is, you know, Ridiculous, Dying. ridiculous costume, ridiculous, ridiculous voice, accent, yeah. ridiculous monologue, and you see him like interspersed with all that Vegas shit. And he's yeah, like, it like zooms into like one of the games, zooms out. You see uh, Tom Parker like with his IV at one of the machines. I think within the first five minutes, I saw that and I was like, I'm gonna try to go with this. I'm gonna try. You're to, not gonna fight it. I'm not gonna fight it. I I, I actually want to like this, and I'm glad I did because like I don't know. I just had a good time. I, I would say the best thing that Baz Luhrmann did is. That scene where you see him swinging his hips for the first time, mm-hmm. and you see everyone in the audience just going, That's a great shit. moment. It's a great moment, and it's so over the top. So over it the top. It pulverizes Ooh. you so much. But, I mean, how many times have you heard how scandalized people were in the 50s by the hip swing? You gotta maximize it. You can't just play it, like, small, because Yo, everybody knows this. You have to communicate, mm. this was a big fucking deal, and you're gonna feel it. You mm. are gonna feel those hips swiggle. <laughs> yes. And that's why I think I like the earlier parts, too, because it feels... I'm, I'm not grounded, but I have something to hang on to. But once it starts to jump into Elvis's life, because Baz, what are you doing? You're doing a whole a whole life of all of Elvis. I am not that familiar with Elvis other than the, the highlights. So I'm like, hey, what's going on? Let's go. 
I was with it pretty much till the end. I mean, I like the first part the best too, mm-hmm. but I, I think Baz Luhrmann is enthusiastic about all stages of Elvis's career. And I mean, he loves Elvis. He has not a, a bad word to say about the man who has never done anything wrong. Yeah, it's a pretty superficial depiction of the mm-hmm. man, definitely. But I mean, in the 1968 comeback special, that section, I think he does a good job communicating what was what was interesting about mm-hmm. that. I think when you see him starting in Vegas after that with his big kind of kooky, large, tacky Vegas show. Lerman through his filmmaking communicates, okay, if you like this, this is what you like about that. Mm-hmm. You find this show so overwhelming. He's he's such a pro. He's doing it. Like, I think at every stage, I was sustained by the fact that Baz Luhrmann loves this and he wants to communicate why he loves this era of Elvis's career. And he's not going to criticize it either. So if you're expecting that, no. you're not going to get that here. No, but I mean, I left it appreciating Elvis more. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the end of the movie, without spoiling it too much, there is there is some well-deployed footage of the actual Elvis towards the end that I think really hits. There are some really funny split scene sequences in this movie. We're like, wow, what are you doing, Baz? Okay, well, there's one bit where he's on stage in Vegas and he's, I, I can't remember what the song was, but you see a split screen where it's him in Vegas. It's the black blues guy that he first heard sing this song and it's him in the 50s. And you see them all on the screen at the same time. And I'm looking at this thinking, are you communicating that this is all the same? Mm-hmm. Because it's <laughs> yes, not. No. Like, are you communicating? It never <laughs> critiques the idea of, <laughs> of, oh, Elvis took this music and they allowed him on stage to do it because he was very good at it. Also, he was white, even though it does hint at it in one sequence when he's like, we, uh, where the Tom Hanks character, Colonel Tom Parker himself goes, we can't play that guy. And then someone's like, but he's white. And he's like, oh, he's white, is he? Yeah, so it, it does have that. It does have a few scenes. I mean, there's that scene where Elvis goes to the black club and he says, they might put me in jail. Mm-hmm. And, and the guy says to him, no, they're not, they won't put you in jail. They'll put me in jail, mm-hmm. but not you in jail. So there's some kind of like quick superficial <laughs> stuff like that to deal with the racial politics of Elvis. He sees Little Richard on stage and somebody says to him, he'll never make as much money as you will, even though he's better, better than, you. than you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so there is a kind of like, oh, we're going to, you know, nod towards it. But Baz is not someone to tackle that kind of stuff. He is not that filmmaker. And he, I love just the sledgehammer approach of every historic moment. Like there's a bit where Elvis is in bed and he's wa- he's watching a news report about Altamont. And then Colonel Parker's next to him and he's reading a newspaper with Sharon Tate's on the cover. <laughs> I mean, Baz is not a subtle filmmaker. He would admit that himself. That's not the kind of movies he makes. And and again, it sounds like a backhanded compliment. But Give us more of this, Hollywood. This is what we want. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we live in an era of, you know, we could have gotten a 10 episode Elvis TV series. No, thank you. Give it to me in two hours. Although that already exists with Jonathan Reese Myers as Elvis and Does uh, it? Randy Quaid as Colonel Tom Parker. When did that come out? 2005. So. Yeah, but it probably feels like a TV series. I, I, like, well, I saw, you don't want that. I watched the trailer. It looked bad. Like, like yeah. There's also the Carpenter, Kurt Russell, Elvis, where there's no Elvis songs in it because they didn't have the rights to them. Uh, I've actually never seen that. I should check. Well, that out. it's supposedly very dull, and also I think four hours long because it was a TV thing. Uh. So finally, we have the ultimate Elvis film. Even though we got two uh, Elvis meets Nixon pictures, one of them was. Kevin Spacey. Uh, that's right, playing Nixon. And it was Michael Shannon playing Elvis. And also a very underrated one. I don't remember who plays the actors, but Alan Arkish directed it. Okay. Where Elvis goes and meets Nixon. That one's fun. I, so don't, I don't know that one. I'll check I would highly out. recommend Alan Arkish would say that's his favorite movie that he's ever made. So, you know, take that as a recommendation as well. So now, Will, a Baz Luhrmann episode coming up? I wouldn't say no, necessarily. Hmm, interesting. But, but, I mean, I haven't changed my opinion on the other ones. <laughs> no. I don't like them. You don't think you'll see Romeo and Juliet and you'll be like, oh, now is the distance to it. I can appreciate 
appreciate what it's doing. Romeo and Juliet's probably my second favorite one. Um, well, Strictly Ballroom's okay, I guess. Yeah, everyone kind of likes Strictly Ballroom. But that's it not feels a Baz Lerman movie. That's something else. It feels like a Baz Lerman movie. Okay. It's just he's in his native Australia, and you feel like he's working in his milieu. And It's but, a low-budget movie, though. Yes. It's not one of these turbocharged Listen, spectaculars. We're going to have to sit down. We're going to have to you know, cut out, I don't know, four hours, I assume, to watch... Bad Lerman's Australia. Oh, no, that's not that one. Anything but that one. 